0: Father, thank you for the provision of this building and for a church like Wayside that has uh, set its mind and its heart on the study of your word over these many, many years. And And we pray, Father, that uh, we would continue to serve you in that way here tonight, uh, putting your word first. and And we thank you, Father, for the attentiveness and the attendance of so many, though we can teach as few as you may call or as many. It is an encouragement, Father, when we find many who are interested in, in studying along with us and that have a similar heart to know and follow your word. Father, thank you for the opportunity to pray with one another as always. We, we know that uh, we are called to do that. We may not always take opportunities as we should. And Father, you're gracious to give us a chance like this when in the midst of a brother or sister we can be reminded of the importance of prayer and setting our mind on the needs of others and petitioning you. Father, as well, we thank you for study of Isaiah. It's a book, Father, that has touched many lives over the centuries, and it was written, Father, with uh, many different audiences in mind. And we were included in that plan, and we thank you, Father, that we may study it tonight under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, by his teaching and not by a man's. And we give praise, Father, and thanks for his wisdom, and and ask, Lord, that whatever we may learn tonight would uh, settle in our hearts in such a way that it would cause us to walk more Clearly and boldly, uh, in a way that honors you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I think I've said here a few times, chapter one is a bit of a mini introduction. Two through five become another introduction to the book. So I want to show you the juncture between one and two and then move rapidly through two and three tonight. I'm going to ask you to jump to some verses in two and three and in four to create milestones or signposts for the next four chapters. So that you'll see, as as I'm going to show you, that there are these natural points of division in what Isaiah does in the course of the next four chapters. So, as an example, just to go into it. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. And I'm not going to read it. I'm just asking you to glance at it. We'll come back through it as we look at the the chapter in whole. Then, if you jump down to chapter 2, verse 6, then after talking about this glorious future, verse 6 turns back to what topic? It's not the glorious future of Israel. What is it? The description of sinful Israel. Sinful Israel. Back on talking sinful Israel again. Now that goes on for an extended part of chapter 2. Then look down to chapter 2, verse 12. Now he begins this discussion of a day of reckoning for Israel. A day of reckoning. This passage or this section on this day of reckoning from 2.12 onward... That goes all the way until chapter 4, verse 1. And then if you want to flip a page or two, look at chapter 4, verse 2. We're back to a glory of Israel in the future. Now look at how he's juxtaposed these. Remember, he came out of chapter 1 expressing dissatisfaction with Israel as a nation, their judgment, their, their wickedness, their failure to follow the Lord that raised them up, and so on, right? He comes immediately out of chapter 1 into chapter 2 with this opposite kind of commentary. Now, all of a sudden we stop talking about bad Israel and the the sinfulness of Israel. We start talking about this glorious future. I started that last week. We will go back through this again, but we're going to get all the way up to this point tonight. There is a constant juxtapositioning or comparison in the book of Isaiah between the current state of sinfulness and a future day of reckoning. So he keeps taking them from their current state of sinfulness to you're going to have judgment in a near-term sense. Then he'll say, oh, and there's a future day of reckoning that's even greater than this near-term one. And then from there yet again to a future redemption that's much greater, much more glorious than anything Israel has seen up to this point. Chapter 5, which we won't get to obviously for another week or two, It describes the beginning of a period called the age of the Gentiles which I talked about the first night in here. This age of the Gentiles that he's going to talk about here, that's the near term judgment. So, there's the current sinfulness of Israel. There's a great day of reckoning for that sinfulness in the future. There is a great future glory for Israel. And there's also... A near-term judgment for their sin, which we will look at later, which is called the Age of the Gentiles. Those will come out in the course of the book. So tonight in chapter 2, what are we starting? Look at verse 1. Just briefly, verse 1. I didn't pause on it last week. Look at how verse 1 opens the chapter again. You'll recognize it immediately. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Should sound very familiar, right? We read almost exactly the same verse to begin chapter 1. This is the only other time he does this. So why does he choose to do it in the first two chapters and never do it again? Well, it's partly, or if not entirely, because chapter 1 stands alone almost as an overview of the book. Chapter 2 starts the book proper with a more involved introduction. Chapter 2, verse 2. Let's go through 2 through 4, this first section. Now it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Chapter 2 now is introducing new details that will continue to expand through the rest of the book, like he's been doing already. This is the promise of a future kingdom. This is the messianic kingdom, as the Jews would have referred to it. We have come to calling it in the church the millennial kingdom because in Revelation, we're given the length of time that this kingdom exists, a thousand years, millennium. So prior to the New Testament, no one knew how long it was going to last. That was a detail that had not been given to the Old Testament prophets. They only knew that it would come, so they called it the Messianic Kingdom, and, it's, and it is. We can call it that, or we can call it the Millennial Kingdom, now that we know it's a thousand years. With this promise of a future kingdom, there is a corresponding promise of a future day of reckoning. You don't get one without the other. You can't eat your dessert unless you've had your vegetables, maybe is a, a simple way to say it. The day of reckoning starts getting discussed in chapter 2, verse 12. Up to that point, he's talking first about the glory and then about their present sinfulness. So in both cases, these verses from verse 2 to verse 5 and these verses here from chapter 2, 12 all the way to 4, 1 are still introductions, if you will, to both topics. These, both these themes, the future glory and this future day of reckoning, come up repeatedly at length and in great detail throughout Isaiah. So we have to consider these first two instances as really just introductions. So we're going to cover them uh, in the same way. We're going to just look at them as a laying of foundation right now. Which means you're going to have questions I'm not answering tonight. To start, last week we said Isaiah uses the term last days. And I said last week, from a prophet's perspective, the last day was a future day when God's work and among men was going to culminate according to his plan. What I didn't do last week, which I want to do tonight is really to show you the range of meaning this word has because the range will show up in Isaiah as well. It doesn't always mean exactly the same thing in Isaiah. For example, we generally refer to the last days as one of two or sometimes three periods of time. For example, let me just read you some verses out of the New Testament to show you the range of meanings. He- Hebrews one 1-1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways... In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, what period of time was that going to cover? In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. You would have to go all the way back to Christ's own walk on the earth because it was in those days he spoke and continues to speak through his Spirit today. But at least you go back that far. And the writer is speaking in the present tense, these last days, so he considered himself a part of that period of time. So it's an ongoing period. The church will often use the term last days and the Bible will often use it in the New Testament as any period after Christ's first coming. So there's one definition of it. James says this in chapter 5, verse 1, talking to the rich and the way the rich are given disproportionate importance in the church. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. What does he mean there? He says, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. His point is, as the end is approaching, the end where there is judgment and eternal consequences for our behavior, whether believer or unbeliever, you're at the brink of that moment of judgment, and in these last days, you're still busy trying to store up treasure in a place where it's going to burn up, where it's going to have no significance once eternity comes on the scene. The analogy I've often heard her use, and I love this analogy, is in the very last days of World War II, I mean the last days, the last weeks of World War II, German currency was worthless. You could take a wheelbarrow of it to buy bread because everyone knew that as soon as the war ended and Germany was sunk, that money would literally be worthless. It wouldn't be usable. So it devalued tremendously overnight. And it would be like somebody in that day and age saving as many of those Deutschmarks as they could. To what benefit? It's only a few days before it's worthless. In the same way, the rich who store up treasure on earth in these last days are storing up Deutschmarks right before the fall of the Third Reich. So the last days here refer to this period of waiting for Christ's return, the period that we're still in today. That's one definition of it, and that's a legitimate definition, but it's not the only one. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul talking to Timothy and to you and I, says, realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, Revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Now, is he talking about the same period of time that Hebrews and James was talking about? In part, yes. In part, yes, because this is still describing a period of time before Christ's return. However, Paul is speaking about it in the future tense to Timothy. So he is not describing his present day circumstances when he describes this. So he is using the term in a more narrow sense. It is still within the same span of time. and It still falls between the first and second coming of Christ, just as the earlier references did. But he has moved it, narrowed it, pushed it down to a smaller slice of that time, specifically at the end of that time. Now, he obviously doesn't give you a month and a day. You can't pin it to a clock, but it's near the end. It's the state of the world, and some would argue even the church, in the last days prior to Christ's return. Second Peter has a similar statement. Second Peter 3.3 Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And on and on. You may know that verse or that passage. Same basic context as Paul. Not today, but in a future day, we're going to see things get pretty bad and here's how they'll be marked. Here's how they'll be characterized. So, the way you look at this is Christ's first coming, Christ's return. The last days. And then inside of that time is another last days. And the difference between these is of degree. One's further down the line than the other and one is more intensely evil than the other. Thirdly and lastly, it can mean the transition point from when the world we know today moves into the kingdom. So it's speaking of, if this represents the start of his kingdom right here at the second coming and outward from Christ's second coming is the millennial kingdom or messianic kingdom, this juncture is often called the last days. And by juncture, I mean it can be used to refer to the period in which this occurs, the day or the moment or the time, and includes some of the early <coughs> moments of that new time. So it's kind of like describing what it looked look like right after we come over the other side. That's the way Isaiah is speaking of it here. He says, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. You see the language there talks about a, a creating of something. So it's in this moment when things are made different and new by Christ's return that he's saying the last days. And then he goes on to describe how that change will look, what it will usher in, what kind of results will come from it. When you see Old Testament prophets talking about the last days, they mean either, generally, this transition moment like Isaiah's is speaking of now, or of the three, which other one do you think they generally mean? It's the second one. The second one, because the Old Testament prophets never knew of a church age. They didn't anticipate their Messiah coming and then leaving. They didn't anticipate a period of time when Israel was hardened. That's totally off their radar. Really, they think of two kinds of last days. The time of the standing up of the kingdom, which is what Isaiah is talking about now. Or this time of reckoning, a time of intense judgment on the earth by God directed at the Jewish people, a day of reckoning which comes at the very end. Now you can see why in chapter 2, Isaiah is putting them together rhetorically because in terms of time, they're linked chronologically. One is immediately preceding the other. They occur back-to-back chronologically. They occur in the text quite often back-to-back literally. So when he begins chapter 2 here describing a mountain, which is the house of the Lord that becomes the chief mountain on the earth, all the Gentile nations streaming to that, you're talking now about Jesus on earth physically, reigning from Jerusalem over a kingdom that is his on earth. That will happen at his return, which we'll study more in this book. We saw last week some of the details. The Gentile nations stream to Jerusalem for two reasons. In the text, there's two reasons why Gentiles come to the nation of Israel and to this mountain. Number one, because God is there. They come to have an encounter with God, which tells you something. The world has gentiles in it with Jews. That's a fact that's interesting. And then on top of that, they know who God is and they know where to find him. There's no confusion among the gentile nations as to where to find God. He is evident and obvious. The second thing they come for, and that's spelled out in the text, to learn and follow him, to learn his ways and follow his ways, to be taught of God. Furthermore, we studied this last week, he's going to judge the nations and he's going to render decisions Now, that's interesting. Somebody raised this after the teaching last week. I I hadn't talked to it myself, though I had intended to get to it eventually, but it came up in a good question last week. If there is the need for Christ to judge the world, and particularly in this case, the Gentile nations who are streaming to him for judgment for rendering of decisions, what does that tell you about the Gentile world? About the nature and the character of these people? They're not sinless people. Without the ability to sin you'd have no disagreements. A disagreement is at its heart a product of sin, of a contention. If we were all of like mind in what is true and right, there wouldn't be a disagreement. There wouldn't be adjudication required. There wouldn't be a judge necessary. No one would have to resolve the conflicts. In fact, the writer, of uh, Isaiah, goes out of his way to say that despite all that rendering, there is no war. In other words, one raises the question of the other. There are conflicts, there is sin, there are still Gentiles in the world who have not been made glorified. And yet, all conflict is resolved peacefully because you have present the Lord whose judgment is always right and who can enforce his judgment. So from this scene, we know we're talking about a time when the Lord is present. Therefore, it's the time following his return. And then I mentioned briefly last week Ezekiel 40 through 48. You get a real detailed description of the mountain. Now, if the Lord is ruling and judging among the Gentiles... What does that say of the Jews during this time? Are they also sinful? Do they still need adjudication as well? Let me take you to Jeremiah 31:31. For many of you, that's a famous, hopefully a, a famous area of scripture. Jeremiah 31:31 through 34. Listen to what God promises the nation of Israel in a future day. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be, they shall be my people. They will not teach each other, uh, well, they will not teach again each man to his neighbor, And each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. The new covenant was promised to who, according to Scripture? Israel. It's a covenant with Israel, promised and given to Israel. Its effects have yet to be seen within the nation of Israel. True? Certainly... You could not say that today there's no need for anyone in Israel to teach each other about the Lord for they all know him and, and so on. That's not happened. And we know from Romans, that Paul says in Romans 11, it, it is not happening now and will not happen until a future day. But in a future day, all Israel will know the Lord. You won't need to evangelize a Jew because they'll all be in the camp of Christ. They'll all know their Messiah. We are being grafted into that new covenant as Gentiles. By faith, we are being made a part of the new covenant in the sense that we are, like what Paul says in Romans 11, we are grafted into the root. So we are the unnatural branches who have been grafted into what was given to the Jew in the form of the new covenant. And the real irony is we're getting it first. But eventually he turns, as Paul says, he turns his attention back from the branches that have been cut off and returns his attention to the natural branches. That's when Israel again becomes the apple of his eye. That will lead to the new Glorious future for Israel when Israel will be saved. So where I'm going with this is, though there will be Gentile nations in this time, to include Gentiles with sin, there will not be any sin within Israel, for all Israel will have already been glorified and brought into that time without sin. That's the the ultimate fulfillment of his promise, that they would live as the chief nation on the earth and that they would be glorified and raised up above all the other nations and they would exist in this time in peace because they will have already been brought into their glory. Bonus question, what about you and I in the church? How do we exist in this time? Are we one of those Gentiles with sin? We're ruling and reigning with Christ. So we have come into that time glorified, his bride, reigning, and in that form now glorified, we don't have sin. For now it's understood that you will have a need for judgment over the Gentile nations. What's interesting about this future time is it's a complete reversal of present-day circumstances for Israel, isn't it? While the Gentiles today are receiving the Lord and the Israel isn't, while the Gentile nations are largely doing as they will in the Middle East and Israel is always fearing for their safety and rarely able to do anything they prefer, in a future day it's complete opposite. Israel is the chief nation on the earth. All the Gentiles stream to it. So the time that will come reverses the circumstances that Israel is in now. And that brings us to the point of the times of the Gentiles, this time when Israel is under judgment. We're going to look at that time again in chapter 5 to come. For now, let's just move forward with Isaiah. Isaiah 2.5. He says, Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east and they are soothsayers like the Philistines and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold and there's no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. Their land has also been filled with idols and they worship the work of their hands that which their fingers have made. So the common man has been humbled, and the man of importance has been abased. But do not forgive them. Enter the rock. Hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. As Isaiah returns now to the discussion of Israel's rebellion, just notice that he never makes the future glory contingent on their present-day obedience. He puts the future glory first, then he turns to talking about their present day sinfulness. It's interesting how Isaiah is consciously divorcing the two in terms of cause and effect. It is not as though he has said, you're messing up now, get yourselves straight, and look what I have for you in the future. He says instead, you have a glorious future, meanwhile, you're messing up, and there's judgment for that messing up, to put it in my terms. Because we've said already, God has a plan for the nation of Israel as an entity. And that plan for the entity is going to happen regardless of what the people on any given day are doing in the nation of Israel individually, just like the water in the lake example. So he has a plan for Canyon Lake, or he has a plan for Israel that doesn't depend on what the water does on any given day. He says, God abandoned his people for a list of reasons. Now, before we look at the list and, and compare it to the first part of the chapter, has God abandoned Israel? Like, for example, in the verses I just read, verse 6, for you have abandoned your people. What does he mean by that? Has he abandoned Israel in the ultimate sense of the word? If he doesn't mean that, what does he mean? Not in the eternal sense of how God has promised to take care of Israel, but in terms of human history, in terms of their experience on earth, we're about 100 years away from when God will reference or show that abandonment in the form of their captivity in Babylon but his judgments at this point are no less certain. And I think that's one of the more instructive pieces you get out of chapter 2, verse 6. You have abandoned your people is spoken of as a certainty, almost as a past tense event, and yet the actual manifestation of that won't happen for another hundred years from the time this was written. So it's, it's already set. It's just a matter of waiting for the clock to tick, long enough for it to take hold. So he speaks in the past tense concerning the judgment and says God's abandonment of Israel was purposeful though temporary. And he's going to give us d- details later concerning that, ab- that abandonment in chapter 5. For now, he just shows the reasons why. Look at the contrast now between the present house of Jacob and that future day when the Gentiles will stream. He says, in the future day, Gentiles stream to hear the Lord's counsel in Israel. Today, Israel goes out to the world to learn what it has to teach about false religion and the occult. That was a violation, by the way, of Deuteronomy 18.10. says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. It's a direct violation of the law they've been given. Now, in verse 7, you see the second sin, a dependence on foreign wealth, where in the future the land is going to have the blessings that God can offer and the the nations around the world paying tribute to Israel. Here you see Israel depending on foreign wealth, taking wealth from the nations around them. And that's a direct violation of the law. Deuteronomy 17:14, He says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen, who you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor, cause, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. You shall not multiply wives for yourself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So, in the law it instructed the nation of Israel, do not go out and seek wives and riches from these other nations, particularly from Egypt. But they had done that. And then, finally... The third sin, which came with their seeking of riches, idols. So while they're in Egypt, while they're in these other countries picking up silver and gold, they take a liking to some of the idols they see in these other cultures. They bring those back as well. God says, I'm going to bring judgment and humiliation. I love the way he says this here uh, as you studied in the Hebrew. At the very end there, he says, The the common man has been humbled and the important man has been abased, but do not forgive them. The um, image earlier was they had been bowing down to idols. They have been worshipping idols. And then he says, I'm going to humble. And the word humble in the Hebrew literally means bow down. So you have been bowing down to idols. I'm going to make you bow down. Pressing them. Pushing them down. Causing them to be prostrate in in the judgment he will bring upon them. Brought low. That might be the best way to say it. Brought low. And this coming humbling of the proud will involve no forgiveness until God's wrath is spent. So he's beginning to allude now to a future time when God is going to have his recompense for what Israel's been doing in these sins among others. Here Isaiah takes it to a new level. You had him talking sin and judgment. Then he would talk often about God's sovereignty and redemption. And then more specifically about a messianic kingdom. Now he's going to make them proper words. You have redemption equals messianic kingdom. Judgment then equals what? Give it a name. Tribulation. If their future redemption in its ultimate instance and its ultimate manifestation is the redemption that gives, that's seen in the form of the Messianic Kingdom, then his ultimate pouring out of wrath, his ultimate recompense for all of Israel's sins is the tribulation. We're moving out of this into this. Chapter 2, verse 12 is where I divide the line, but you could even draw a couple of verses earlier because he starts to talk it even before he mentions literally the day of reckoning or the day. Then he gets to verse 10. Enter the rock hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted. Now listen, in that day. He starts to become very specific about a time now. Not just saying generally, hey, you're going to have to pay for this. He starts talking about a moment when it's going to happen. Then he goes further, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of man will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. When you see in Scripture, and I'm speaking now of the Old Testament, when you see in Scripture... The term, the day of the Lord, or in this case, a day. In the Bible, you may see yours say the day of reckoning. In truth, reckoning is not in the Hebrew. It's just the day, yom. But it's a reference to this moment, this time of judgment, which when you put together all that the Old Testament prophets have to say on this coming day, the great and terrible day of the Lord, it is sometimes confused with the day of Christ's return. To the extent that that is the last day of tribulation, well, then that's correct. But it's not limited to that day. It's speaking, in, even though it uses the word yom for day, it's speaking, as Hebrews often do with that term, to mean a period of time. And in this case, specifically, the period of time we now know from the New Testament is called tribulation. Another common way to call it in the Old Testament is the time of Jacob's troubles, which in itself tells you a little bit about its purpose, right? Who is it for? Israel. As it is seen here, again, it's specifically to Israel that this is being spoken. I want to show you some comparisons to really flesh this out. For example, anyone who studied Revelation with me should have noticed something early in the verses I just read that should have caught your attention. Verse 10: Enter the rock, hide in the dust. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Anyone who studied Revelation, that should ring a bell. Let me show you what bell it's ringing. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 6 in Revelation. Revelation 6:12. John writes, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. Talking about Christ opening the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty... Now, does that sound familiar to what was just written in Isaiah? What was the group of people in Isaiah? Verse 11 of chapter 2, the proud, the lofty. Those men, he says, and then he goes on, every slave and every free man, he says, which captures everyone else, that's corresponding to 17 of Isaiah 2. The pride of man will be humbled. In chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty. In other words, he emphasizes the mighty, but he doesn't stop there. He captures everyone in it. Likewise, Revelation 6.15, the kings, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man, now look at what they did, hid in caves and among rocks of the mountains. So where do they seek refuge in the midst of the sixth seal being opened? They go into caves. They go into mountains and rocks to hide from the terror of what they see going on around them. Revelation 6 goes on, chapter 6, verse 16. They call to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Even in Revelation, we hear about the great day, and yet we know this period of time lasts longer than a day. So Isaiah is already start talking about a day of reckoning, a day when God has his recompense with Israel, a day in which the, lo- the proud and the lofty are brought low, and it involves so much terror that men are riding, hiding in rocks, hiding in caves. Look what Isaiah goes on to say, verse 18 of chapter 2. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. Does that sound like Revelation? The verses we just read? Then Isaiah goes on, verse 20. In that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship. In order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? I love the way he says his Idols will vanish from Israel because the men who are hiding in these dark recesses of caves from this shaking earth are going to toss their idols aside in these places to the moles and to the bats that are around them in these caves. But what's interesting here is what do moles and bats have in common? They're blind. So here you have the spiritually blind tossing their idols to the physically blind, both of whom are holed up in caves. It's just fabulous, This again, Shakespearean-esque, the way he weaves this together. And what are they tossing? Silver and gold, not wooden ornaments here, but wealth. Now, whether these are fashioned into the shape of an idol or not is almost immaterial because the point here is they're valuable, they're precious. Raymond Orthon wrote this, which I thought was just perfect. He said, idols are precious. They are always hard-won silver and gold. That's why we prize them. They're beautiful, but they're also contemptible. J.R.R. R. Tolkien portrayed this in The Lord of the Rings. Everyone who wears the golden ring of power turns into something weirdly subhuman, like Golem, who cherishes it as my precious. So for Middle Earth to be saved, the ring must be thrown into the fire of Mount Doom and destroyed forever. Tolkien understood that the key to life is not only what we lay hold of, but also what we are willing to throw away. And so there is, in uh, this picture of them throwing their silver and gold, a confirmation of what Isaiah's already been criticizing them for earlier, which was that they had valued silver and gold to this extent, that they held on to it, they made it idols, whether it was shaped like one or not. It is very easy in the the language of Scripture to think idols only in their pygmy Africa sense, to use the caricature, right, to use the most obvious stereotype. We would not consider ourselves, under most circumstances, idol worshippers, for one, because we know the Lord, and so that would seem to remove us from the category of idol worship, at least that's how most of us think of it, or can be led to think of it. And then, secondly, because we don't have a little altar usually in our house, our TV notwithstanding, which we would then, you know, <laughs> set up little things like this and look at them and bow down to them. But what I'm thinking is that because we think of it so concretely, little statues sitting somewhere that we honor as God. Oh, I don't do that, so I guess I'm not worried about idol worship. Can't we move on to something I have, you know, that's interesting to me? You have to understand this in a broader context than merely these little idols. The men of the last days are not ignorant pygmies running around with loincloths. all right? These are the days we live in, by and large. Some future day from here, but we're not going to regress to the point where we suddenly think a, man, a piece of wood we carve is, a, is God. I, I doubt. What we will do instead is we will worship our wealth. We're doing that now. How does an idol take hold? By directing our affections away from the Lord such that we don't follow him, we follow something else. So. If we have something in our life that we, pres- that we consider so precious that it directs our decision making, and I can put it in very simple terms, if I've got a job that has a certain income that I need to support a certain lifestyle and all of that has to be held intact or I can follow God's leading to do something which puts all of that at risk, All right, well, there's your idle moment, at least potentially, because if that puts at a barrier to following God, it has become, at least in the moment in your heart, a barrier to obedience What's the difference between that and an idol? In some sense, there's a big difference because we know the Lord and we're saved in that, in that faith. But in a practical, daily sense, we're living as though we don't know Him if we're not careful. He's judging a world here for whom that is their entire faith and lifestyle, true. Not just a, a kind of poor witness. But as a Christian, it doesn't hurt to think of it from our own point of view and look for an opportunity to make a, a, a comparison or make an application. So Isaiah ends with this footnote. He says, They've stopped regarding... They should stop regarding and esteeming men, which implies, rather than esteeming God, which is what they should have been doing from the beginning. And from that last line, this line of stop esteeming men, it becomes a nice transition for him into chapter 3. And it it actually enters into one of his favorite topics. His favorite topic here to criticize leadership. Isaiah was certainly a um, malcontent when it comes to leadership. And in that way, he was very much like his Lord. Because... One of the most common things Jesus did in his ministry on earth was to criticize those who were in Israel's leadership in their day, in the pharisaical leadership, the false leaders of Israel. And God, through Isaiah, announces in chapter 3 a systematic dismembering of the leadership in Israel in this day of reckoning. It's still this day. We're not leaving this discussion, but he moves to a a point within this discussion, Israel's leadership. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, For behold... The Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan and the skillful enchanter. And I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. I've been in a few homes where that goes on, by the way. Capricious children will rule over them, and the people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, and the inferior inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, (laughs) you shall be our ruler, and these ruins will be under your charge. He will protest on that day, saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against His glorious presence. The expression of their faces bear witness against them and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. This is still in that day of reckoning. This is a part of what God is going to do to the nation of Israel in that day. He's going to remove both supply and support. That's a Hebrew expression which just means everything. Kit and caboodle would be another way we might say it. Everything is going to be taken. Their entire economic system on which they depend is going to be removed. They won't even be able to find bread and water. Now, what kind of circumstances could God orchestrate so that the nation of Israel and just the nation of Israel, or said differently, just some segment of society will be unable to get even the most basic things they need and yet it's still available to other people. Chapter 13 of Revelation tells us how God's going to do this in the tribulation. Chapter 13, verse 7. Speaking of the beast, who we know as the Antichrist, if you, know this, if you know a little of Revelation, a man who comes to great power and rules the world under the influence of Satan, it was given to him, meaning the beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. So in that chapter of Revelation, just a snippet there, you see a description of a period of time in this future day of reckoning, which we call tribulation, when a man who has such great power comes to the scene that he can completely remake the economic systems of the world such that without his approval, which is authorized through this stamp, you can't buy and sell. Now, is that what God's referring to in Isaiah? I can't be certain, but it certainly fits the pattern. It certainly fits the pattern that there's only two groups that really uh, experience persecution during the time of the Antichrist reign. Again, this goes back to studying Revelation, if, you, if you've done it, or if you haven't, this is new maybe. It's the saints who are mentioned in that passage, and is those who follow the commandments of God or follow Moses basically the Jews of the day. So you have the true believing Christian who knows the Lord and is following him in that day, the tribulation saint. And then you have a group of Jews who have yet to know the Lord as Savior, but are still following Moses, still following the Jewish orthodox view of scripture. And they stand opposed to the Antichrist as well because they do not acknowledge him as God, certainly. So you have those two groups within society who hold fast to their beliefs and as a result are the two persecuted groups of this time of tribulation. And to those two, there's martyrdom and there's an inability to sell and buy. So, verses 2 through 7 of Isaiah describe God's plan to address the corrupt leadership in his day of reckoning. He removes all strong and confident leadership. Did you notice that? Anyone who has legitimate claim to authority, whether they're corrupt or not, he's not singling out the bad guys from the good guys. He is saying, if you have people in leadership who know how to lead, they're leaving. And in their place... I'm bringing incompetent and even unwilling leaders. Did you notice also the one guy who was, I love that scene about the guy, hey, you have a cloak, so? You have a long coat. That makes you a good leader. How about you take over? Meaning you're an adult. You have some standing. You have something that we can grasp onto. But do you notice what they offer him? How would you like to rule over our ruins? Did you notice that? I mean, this is just a great job offer. I loved. I I could just see it now. We got a deal for you you got a cloak, so how about you rule over, where is it here? These ruins will be under your charge. I love that, right? It's like timeshare property. Well, there, there will be a lake here one day. There's ruins. Would you like to rule over them, please? He goes, no. <laughs> he says, I'm not going to be your healer. I don't have any bread either. I don't have a cloak. I'm no better off than you. So you have unwilling, incompetent leaders who, in the pressures of that day, this is this day of reckoning, the world's fallen apart, and Israel's looking for leaders as God systematically dismantles leadership, and who would want to be in charge under those circumstances? No one. Now, how is God going to remove this leadership? I've already talked how are men going to be hidden in caves? How is he going to prevent men from being able to buy and sell? How is he going to remove the leadership? Revelation 9:13. Then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who have been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates of color of fire and hyacinth and of brimstone and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and by the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads and with them they do harm. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Now again, does that say what Isaiah said? Well, no. But could it be the mechanism or the means by which God is removing leadership? Well, certainly it could be. And even if this isn't the exact moment, it's representative, I think, or a good indication of the kind of things that are happening in tribulation, such that there is wide-scale death and destruction, God's plan and and his intention, and it is systematically a process of removing the support structures of the world, the population of the world being cut down, even the natural features of the earth being disrupted, so that the earth itself is going through this mass churn by which God is going to accomplish a number of things which would include the removal of the leadership of Israel so that children rule over uh, ruins, as he calls it. When he starts talking about the future of that nation, we know from other scripture it includes all the tribes of Israel, not just the ones that were present in Judah in his day. Follow what I'm saying? He's speaking to the southern kingdom about their present-day circumstances, but when he speaks about the future Uh, glory that will come to that nation, at that future point, God will reconvene all 12 tribes, not just the ones that are in Judah. Even in the midst of this onslaught, God is able to rescue the righteous. Verse 10, he says, Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with them. There's an understatement. For what he deserves will be done to him. O my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. Oh my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord entered, enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunderer of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God? All right, so the righteous have hope. Righteous here would refer to who? What makes anyone righteous? Faith in God's provision of the Messiah, ultimately, and then faith lived out in the way that they represented in their life here. He's referring to those who do right because of their righteous life are, are seen as righteous in their actions, their fruit. The wicked have no such hope. They have a time of reckoning, reckoning, right? He reiterates that the problem began at the top with their leadership. Ezekiel says this about God's plan for the time of tribulation. Ezekiel, speaking of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 20, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. That's one of my favorite verses. This is Ezekiel 20, 33 through 38. Look what he said in verse 34. I'm going to bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you've been scattered. That would be a regathering of Israel. And I'm going to bring you into the wilderness. And there he says, I'm going to enter into judgment with you. His principal reason for regathering Israel when they start to come back into their land, which has already started, is to initiate judgment with them. I love the way he says it face to face, mano a mano. Then he says... Verse 36, As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. But look what the judgment's intended for. Verse 37, I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. And I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. Why does He bring Israel into a future day of gathering? to cause them to pass under the rod. What is that a picture of? Discipline, right? The rod of basically like he's going to spank them. I'm gathering you to discipline you so that what will arrive bring you back into the bond of the covenant. What would be the bond of the covenant? What covenant is he speaking about here? What what bond are they breaking that he has to bring them into agreement with? The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. He has to bring them into the bond How do you bring someone into the bond of the Old Covenant? How can someone live the Old Covenant perfectly? Only if you're sinless, right? Only if you're sinless. So in order for God to achieve this promise to Israel in this future day, whatever this day of reckoning does, it has to have as its accomplishment, as its product, a sinless Israel. And there's more to it than that, because the bond of the covenant stipulated, if they do the right thing, they have blessings. But if they do the wrong things, God is obligated by His own word to bring judgment against them. So in the day of reckoning, God is keeping His word to the extent that at the end of this, through faith, God brings them all into glory. In fact, for those of you who have stayed with me before, you know where I'd take you right now, right? Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah chapter 12, He talks about this day when I will pour out the Spirit of supplication and grace on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the house of David, on the house of Nathan, on the house of Levi, and on the house of Shimei. And he does it so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn for me as they mourn for an only son. Meaning, it is in this last day of tribulation when the nation of Israel is gathered and under persecution from the Antichrist and apparently about to be destroyed and the Lord returns with the saints... And he does it in such a way that the Spirit himself influences the hearts of the the nation of Israel to turn them all to faith in a moment so that they would then call out on the Lord and in in that calling he responds to their call and returns for them and they are all made faithful and as a result of this chastisement of tribulation, a nation is born again in faith and receives their Messiah. We come back with him in that moment as chapter 19 of Revelation describes. So... The whole point he's raising here of reckoning in connection with this is to make the point that one actually leads to the other because the bond of the covenant obligates God to hold judgment against those who break the covenant. But it's not to the destruction of Israel. It's to the saving of Israel. All right, time's run out. Boy, that happens a lot. But chapter 3, verse 16 through 26 is the same. I'm going to cover it next week briefly, but it's very, very simple. It's the same theme. Leadership was men, right? He was talking about the men and all their failings. But just so that the women don't feel left out, 16 through 26 is talking about the haughty, prideful women in the culture who, if you look at verse 16, walk with their heads high. That's, it's actually in the, in the Hebrew, it's with your neck stretched out. That's what it literally says. And seductive eyes... So the intention here is that they influence, seductively influence the men so as to cause them to do what they want, and it's an evil intent. Okay, It's the Jezebel kind of effect here. Verse 16, just to finish tonight, they go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. You know what a mincing step is? Intentionally small, exaggerated small steps. Why do you take exaggerated small steps? To tinkle the bangles on your feet. Here's a little trivia question. Tell people you can find the word tinkle in the Bible. The whole point is to show off their wealth, to gain attention. Look at me, look at me. You know anyone who does that these days? They're out there. So this is a style of of living, a kind of attitude, a haughtiness that is imbued in the women. They find themselves under God's judgment for that same kind of attitude. We will read those verses next week. I don't want to ignore them, but the point of them is very simple. It's the corresponding judgment to women that goes with the men and their evil in that day. All of this, a problem of authority and all of it a reason for God's judgment. So the nation of Israel sees in the form of their men, leadership removed in the form of their women, beauty, wealth, and comfort removed, and at worst, as you would see at the very uh, beginning of of chapter 4, they even lose access to the men themselves. The women are crying out for a mate because there aren't enough men to go around, which is a huge dishonor in Jewish society for a woman to go unmarried. So... You have God stripping them from everything they can take human pride in, leaving them bare. It, it's, it's the ultimate day of discipline. Okay. So next week we come back in. We'll finish a little of that, but we'll come really into chapter 4 and look at this glory again as he revisits this future day of glory. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, there's uh, often times when my, uh, my heart is bigger than my than my clock, Father. We want to get more through more of your scripture than we may have time for but... Father, you're good to bring us back, and uh, perhaps, Father, there's a wisdom in ending when we can so that we have time to think closely and carefully about what we've learned. I pray, Father, that what we have heard tonight, as rich and deep as it may be, or even just as a reminder for things we already knew, would give us an intense longing for your return, just a great anticipation for these plans to be played out. And, and Father, we recognize that judgment is a, a terrible thing. Wrath, Father, is a terrifying thing but we glory in the fact that by grace we will escape that time and can look forward to time of glory in your presence. But Father, give, it a heart, give us a heart also to know that so many are still in jeopardy and we have perhaps opportunity by your grace to bring them a message of hope. We pray for that opportunity as well to be useful to you in that way. And Father, according to your will, may we return and study yet again. In Jesus' name, amen.